Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 1st of July 2019 and this is episode 120. On today's programme, Professor Katrina Pennell from the University of Exeter talks about her book on the popular responses to the outbreak of the Great War in 1914. I spoke to Katrina from her home in Cornwall. Katrina, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your book today, which examined public and popular responses to the outbreak of the Great War. Before we start, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the First World War? Of course, and thank you for having me on the podcast uh, programme, Tom. Um, So my name is Katrina Pennell. I'm an Associate Professor of History at the University of Exeter. Uh, And I think by my last count, this is my 10th year in this post this year. So it feels like quite a milestone. And um, my book, A Kingdom United, Popular Responses to the Outbreak of the First World War in Britain and Ireland, uh, came out in 2012 and was then reissued as a paperback in 2014. So it is uh, much more affordable. It came out with um, Oxford University Press and is based on my doctoral thesis, based on my PhD research. But how did I how did I get to this point? Well, your, your question has sort of uh, provoked a, a, a bit of nostalgia, really. I've sort of been thinking back as to how I how I got involved in in the history of the First World War. I studied it at GCSE um, in the very sort of classic traditional sense of thinking about trenches and thinking about um, the experience of soldiers in the trenches. Dennis Winter's um, Death's Men was was a prominent text that my GCSE history teacher introduced me to, and and for for, for all it, it, its problems that you know I'm I'm perhaps now more aware of as a of, as a more accomplished historian. It did um, provoke questions in my mind about how people could survive and endure something so horrendous, how humans have such capacity to commit inhumanity to one another, um, and questions around how conflict of this scale could be allowed to happen by the societies that, that were involved in them. So I went on to study history and politics at Trinity College Dublin as an undergraduate and then again as as, as a postgraduate student. Um, and in my time there, I was was lucky enough to be taught by three leading and seminal scholars in the field of European and Irish history of the First World War, uh, Alan Kramer and John Horne, who are, of course, um, very prominent scholars on the European side, and the late David Fitzpatrick, who um, really was uh, the, the, the leading scholar of his time on Irish experience of the First World War. So I got to pursue my interest in the First World War um, in much more detail and with this added angle of of Irish recovery of that story. But it wasn't really until 2002, 2003, I'd, I'd left Trinity to undertake my um, MSc at the London School of Economics. I, I, I thought I was going off to change the world, join the UN, and um, I studied international relations. But I got a bit sidetracked whilst I did my MSc because it was the same time that the coalition were planning the invasion of Iraq, which eventually took place in March 2003. And as I got more and more involved in the Stop the War movement, which culminated in the um, tremendous mass rally on the 13th of February 2003, I kept coming back to this question of how societies enter war. How do ordinary people feel about this? 
moment of their country going to war. And it, and it, I kept coming back to 1914. How did people feel in August 1914, people in Britain and Ireland, as their country entered what would we what we now know as the First World War? So why do you think a book was necessary on 1914 in particular? I think you've probably touched on this already. So during my studies at Trinity College as an undergraduate, um, and in particular um, studying with, with John Horn, it became clear that there were some really important studies on the topic of um, how French and German societies entered the First World War in 1914, but there wasn't really anything similar for Britain and Ireland. So in France, you've got Jean-Jacques Becker's study of French public opinion, uh, 1914, how the French entered the war um, in its translation, which which, um, came out in 1977. Um, and really is a a landmark contribution to the scholarship and the methodology that we as historians can employ to um, uncover public feeling from people who are long since um, uh, have long since died. And then more recently, um, Geoffrey Verhey's The Spirit of 1914, Militarism, Myth and Mobilisation in Germany, which came out in 2000. And again, um, not only helps us to understand how um, German people felt as they entered the war, and also does quite a bit to challenge myths of, of jingoistic mass enthusiasm in the German context. But again, it also raised really interesting questions about methodology, particularly in Verhey's case, around how, as historians, we dissect crowds, um, how we analyse crowd behaviour, and also how we use newspapers as sources of public opinion. So combined, you know, these are two really important studies for France and Germany that, by default, exposed the very prominent gap on the library shelf for Britain and Ireland. So that that's essentially um, what I wanted to do was to contribute contribute to the historiogra- historiography of the First World War um, and provide um, a sort of comparative uh, uh, comparative volume to Verhey and Becker's work. You talk, you touched very briefly on the myths around um, the outbreak of war in terms of the mass jingoism. What sort of myths surround the popular reception of the Great War in Britain and Ireland? Sure. So just to deal with um, Britain first. Traditionally, um, and, and, and these are ideas that you see emerging in the interwar period, particularly in the memoirs of politicians at the time. Um, David Lloyd George is, is perhaps the most um, prominent example of, uh, of a vector of this myth of war enthusiasm. But, but you see the idea of, of war enthusiasm um, continuing right through until, well, in the historiography, right through until the late 19. 19- 80s, but you also see it appearing in more popular circles, right? I mean, most recently um, in, in 2014, um, where Gareth Malone, the um, celebrity uh, choir conductor, um, he organised a military wives choir for Proms 2014. And in a couple of um, newspaper interviews, he talked about how he wanted, because it was a centenary year of the outbreak of the First World War, he wanted to use this moment to rekindle the elation of 1914. So this sense that there was something very enthusiastic about war breaking out or that people responded to the outbreak of war in Britain in 1914 very, very enthusiastically, um, that there, that you see descriptions of, of crowds behaving, behaving in this sort of drunk and 
feverish um, manner that they are sort of clawing at the gates to get across to, to, to the continent and, and kill as many Germans as possible. So that's that's the sort of myth that um, or the picture of, 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 of feeling that had stayed very prominent, as I say, for um, the decades since um, 1914. The Irish case is effectively the the opposite and in 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 the sort of traditional understanding of irish reactions to the outbreak of the first world war um it was you know england's difficulty is ireland's opportunity and that people were reveling in england's tragedy that irish people didn't want anything to do with britain's war that it was nothing to do with them so those were the two kind of um i prominent ideas about the war that um I really wanted to try and not necessarily challenge. I hoped I would challenge them, but I wanted to nuance them. I wanted to dig deeper. I wanted to explore um, the 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 elements that, that that made up that picture. And as a result, I I, I believe I did end up challenging both those um, both those ideas on on the on the British side of, of mass enthusiasm and on the Irish side of this kind of mass apathy. Now, one thing that is wonderful about history is that we have this idea of hindsight, and when we look at uh, the outbreak of war in, in August. 1914 was it expected by people at the time i think this is a really difficult question to answer tom and 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 to answer briefly because it 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 depends who we're talking about now if we're thinking about elite level you know military planners naval experts political officials all of whom would be privy to much more detailed debate and discussion than, you know, and I'm using my my rabbit ears, inverted commas, ordinary people, those who were not privy to those types of discussions and debate, then I would say that there was a clearer sense of the European political landscape in the lead up to August 1914, and that there was an understanding that um, a potential confrontation was on the cards at some point. I mean, nobody has um, a magical crystal ball. Nobody knew precisely when that would happen or, more importantly, what format that would take. I mean, I don't think anyone envisaged the mass industrialised warfare that, that became so characteristic of the First World War. But I would say at elite level, there was a sense that this kind of um, confrontation on the continent was a possibility. But I think we have to be careful how far we take this idea, because, of course, most people were not privy to the details of official discussion. I would say that by July 1914, British and Irish people were certainly anxious and they were certainly aware that a future war was a prospect. It was not a welcome prospect, but it was a prospect. But they didn't necessarily envisage it as an immediate contingency. And I think as well, to to add to this sort of complexity of feeling, you have to remember that other crises, other European crises, the Agadir crisis of 1911, the two Balkan wars of 1912 and 1913, they had passed. And they had passed, okay, yes, I'm not I'm not claiming that these weren't particularly in the case of the Balkan Wars, bloody and violent, but they had passed without Britain being sucked into it. So even if tensions were running high in July 1914, I would say that most people felt that this current crisis would pass. And to add another layer of, of sort of nuance and complexity, ironically, Anglo-German relations, which I think in traditional historiography is sort of wheeled out as the cause of the First World War, and I'm and I'm not claiming that um that it's not an important factor. But sort of paradoxically, the, the, the period 1911 to 1914, you actually witness um, increasing attempts 
to improve Anglo-German relations. So, for example, the, the Haldane mission of February 1912, um, which was trying to improve Anglo-German relations after the Agadir crisis, it wasn't successful, but the very fact it happened demonstrated a willingness for the two sides to cooperate and talk to each other. Um, Britain and Germany cooperated during the Balkan Wars. They, they reached agreements in the preceding years before the First World War over Portuguese colonies, as well as the Baghdad Railway. So there was a sense, I think, among, amongst ordinary people that, yes, it was possible, but it wasn't imminent. It wasn't something that was absolutely on the horizon. And then the final thing I would say um, to that question is the focus that both British and Irish people had at the time on domestic issues. Um, you know, Britain, the British government was facing a kaleidoscope of problems in the summer of 1914. Uh, Labour unrest, the suffragette protests, um, uh, as well as the fact that um, the situation between Britain and Ireland was at its lowest point. Um, in fact, you know, King George V, um, the, the monarch of the time, was, was openly talking about prospects of civil war in late July 1914. So what I'm saying here is that um, even if people in Britain and Ireland were aware of things getting tense on the continent, there were far more pressing matters happening at home domestically to, to sort of um, occupy their attention and their anxiety. So August 14 um, comes around, the war breaks out. How was it received across Britain and Ireland? I know that's a very complex question and, and with a population of 40 million odd. Well, I think what what strikes me from from the research that I've done is the range of emotions that are felt. And I, when, whenever I'm sort, whenever I talk about this this part of my research, I always feel like I'm you know I'm I'm stating the bleeding obvious, really. But humans are complex creatures, and we we react to things in in many different ways, often having a range of emotions felt simultaneously. So. How on earth the idea that 40 million people reacted to the outbreak of war with one emotion, enthusiasm, lasted for so long is, is really beyond me. But anyway, it's, it's given me the platform to, to, to write what I hope is, a, is, is an interesting book on the subject. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is the range of emotions, um, shock, despair, uh, panic, um, a sense of sort of stoic necessity well this 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 tragedy has befallen us we we must do our duty we must react to it in in the most sort of appropriate way possible um as well as a, a thirst for news i think was a very common reaction people grabbing at whatever nugget of information they could get their hands on to try and understand the rapidly changing and unfolding situation that was you know the bank holiday weekend of late july 1914 the type of language that you see across the local and national press, as well as in private diaries and personal letters, are things like thunderbolt, stunned, uh, whirlwind, unexpected, bolt from the blue, which, you know, adds to to this sense of shock and and um, you know, sort of stupefaction. Really, um, I was very very struck in my research by the efforts people went to to try and find out what was happening um, as the situation changed hour by hour, day by day, gathering at railway stations, um, gathering at post offices, at newspaper headquarters, gathering in, if they, if they were London residents, gathering in Whitehall, Parliament Square, Buckingham Palace. So in some way that, that helps us to understand the phenomena of crowd gatherings that we can't necessarily read as crowds gathering because they were jingoistic and hungry for war. 
I would say a lot of these people are gathering because they are desperately trying to understand what's happening and to fill the vacuum of, of, of news and information. Was there any opposition in the war in the weeks after its declaration? Yeah, and I think I think you know to answer that question properly, Tom, I want to emphasise that chronology matters and a fine chronology matters. I mean that that's one of the reasons when I undertook this research project, and again I was I was heavily influenced by the way that Jean-Jacques Becker and Geoffrey Verhey had approached their uh, research. Um, I wanted to zoom in on a short period of time, August to December 1914, um, in order to really try and unpack what was happening on an hour by hour, day by day basis, because things changed, particularly in those last weeks of July, first weeks of August, things changed very, very rapidly. So to answer your question about opposition to war, chronology matters, because before Britain officially enters the war on the 4th of August. And in fact, before Germany declares war on France on the 3rd of August, there was, I'm not sure I would describe it as opposition to war, but there was a strong sense of of campaigning for pro-neutrality. So you see a lot of people across British society arguing the case that Britain absolutely has to stay neutral in this conflict, um, that this conflict was not Britain's fight, um, You also see a lot of arguments around um, strategic and economic necessity to stay neutral, that it would privilege economics if Britain stayed neutral. Um, So you see a lot of a lot of campaigns um, and and, and in in the the press, both locally and, and nationally, campaigning for neutrality. There was a large anti-war demonstration on the 2nd of August. Um, uh, People gathered in Trafalgar Square. Um, The Scottish Socialist and Labour Party MP uh, Keir Hardy was one of the key speakers at that event. But I think what's interesting is how quickly once war was declared, that type of opposition pretty much evaporates. Three cabinet members resign, but that tended to be their single act of resistance. In fact, uh, they talk about um, how they're going to maintain a tactical silence from that point onwards. So they've resigned. That's their act of, of, of resistance. But they're not going to disrupt Parliament's business moving forward. They're not going to disrupt the war effort moving forward. Um You see groups that were traditionally in a very antagonistic relationship with the British government. I'm thinking about the Independent Labour Party. I'm thinking about the suffragettes. Um, I'm thinking about Nationalist Ireland and Unionist Ireland. You see these political groupings beginning to suspend political difference. They see that once war is declared, once Britain is in this fight, that they need to put political difference aside and to come together for, for the common good. So opposition was not widespread in 1914. It it didn't disappear entirely, but it was not a majority force by any stretch of the imagination. And how did uh, people feel and and view the war at the end of the period that you were examining around um, December 1914? Well, I think what what struck me as I was as I was, you know, undertaking this research and applying this methodology of of fine chronology, you know, really trying to drill down into a, a day by day account of what was going on across Britain and Ireland. I think what you see happening is in is within about six weeks or so of um, the of, of Britain entering the war, you begin to see chaos and, and dislocation beginning to settle down. It doesn't resolve. You know, economic dislocation doesn't disappear, but you start seeing people get more used to the new normality. 
um, if you can describe it as that. People start getting used to what being at war feels like, what it looks like. But tensions are also beginning to manifest themselves. Um, you know, this phrase business as usual, which is banded around very, very um, uh, sort of uh, casually in, in British society at this time, was only ever really an aspiration. It was it was not a reality. Things were not as usual. Things were not normal. Economically, things begin to level off, but there is still quite a degree of dislocation, employment patterns change, and this is where you see quite a degree of regional difference appearing. You see people having to make sacrifices, which is, of course is all relative depending on your socioeconomic circumstance, but there is this element of frugality that luxuries have no place in wartime society, that people need to be making sacrifices. You see the emotional weight of war beginning to take its toll. So whilst economically, perhaps things are levelling out a bit, emotionally, things are becoming very, very hard. Casualty lists are beginning to be printed. People are beginning to understand what industrialised warfare looks like, particularly by November and the first battle of Ypres. And I would say as well that people are beginning to see how war is changing every aspect of their life. I talk in the book about changing landscapes. You know, people start to see, obviously, lots of men in uniform. They start to see in certain parts of the country trenches being dug, for example, on Folkestone Cliffs. People start to see searchlights, um, blackouts, you know, the things that um, are so characteristic of 20th century warfare start to become part of day to day reality. And finally, I would say people are, are beginning to have to get used to separation. They're beginning to have to get used, used to families being split apart husbands, brothers, fathers going away to war. And, and and this sort of speaks to the point I'm making about the emotional toll. So I think by Christmas 1914, people are beginning to understand the cost of war. And certainly that the longer the war goes on, the more devastation would be inflicted. And, and people understood this. And finally, where can people get your book from and find out more about your research? Well, I did a cheeky check on Amazon and my book is still available in, in paperback on Amazon and I'm sure in all good bookshops, but uh, probably not. But yes, it's still available there. But um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's uh, available in, in um, a lot of libraries around the country. So I would, of course, encourage your listeners to um, make use of libraries, keep, keep libraries alive and borrow books rather than buying them. In terms of my, my research since the book, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is at Teach Learn War. And that is indicative of some of the more recent research I've been doing during the centenary around um, the cultural memory of war and the way young people interact with that. So um, people can find out more about what I'm up to more recently by, by if they are Twitter users, by checking into that. Otherwise, do feel free to look up my profile on the University of Exeter's webpage. And if you want to make contact with me, do drop me an email. Katrina, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>